Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the 100th episode of the Warden's Watch podcast. I'm your host, Wayne Saunders, and have been for all 100 episodes. I just want to start off by saying a, a big thanks to a lot of people that uh, made this podcast happen. It's, it's, it's amazing how much work goes into this. You know, I just want to say a big thank you to my co-host, John Norris. But a lot of the people you guys don't see behind the scenes as well. Lindsay Webb, thank you. When we first started this podcast, Lindsay designed the webpage. Huge, huge thing. Webpage. Uh, and, and organize that. And still to this day, I can call Lindsay and ask her questions and she'll answer them for me. Morgan Day, Morgan Day, young, bright, young lady uh, from Wisconsin, uh, going to the University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point, will be one day a Wisconsin game warden. I am sure of that. She came on and helped me out with the social media side of things. I did a lot of work, did the art for Warden's Watch for a while. That's the cover art you see on your Instagram, Facebook, uh, podcast.com. Uh, Those are the things that she did. And she brought a lot of uh, a youth into uh, the Warden's Watch podcast, which uh, thank you, Morgan, for doing that. Uh, Morgan left and Stacy DeRoche from Canada took over and does our show notes, uh, does the art just like Morgan did. To be honest with you, I really couldn't do the whole podcast without these people. Unpaid positions, basically. Every now and then they get a sweatshirt or a t-shirt or something, but uh, just uh, have a passion for conservation, and this is how they can help, which I greatly appreciate all of those. My guests, I have had such dynamic guests through the three years of doing the Warden's Watch podcast. It has been uh, a great joy to me, a great uh, influence on listeners. Everyone has been dynamic and relevant. It's been super. So thank you for every guest that was on the Warden's Watch podcast. And finally, you guys, the listeners. How can I not say thank you to my listeners? Because without you, there wouldn't be a podcast. To continuing growth that you guys uh, help out with by telling your friends, your family about the Warden's Watch podcast and, and getting other listeners to listen to the podcast. You guys are the best and I appreciate you and I will hope that you will continue to listen. We'll continue to tell your friends and family and we'll continue to grow to 200 episodes next. So again, thank you to all those people. And I just had to start off with the 100th Warden's Watch podcast with a big thank you to everybody that was involved 
from the people that started at ground zero all the way to the listeners, which again, can't do it without you. Thank you. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from Game Wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves Game Wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. This Warden's Watch is number 100, 100. That's an epic uh, number for any podcaster to, to get to that number. And for number 100, we have a very, very famous Game Warden that I want to introduce, uh, Joe Pickett, as you guys know, but not Joe Pickett, the author behind Joe Pickett, which is uh, very exciting for both John and I, just living the Game Warden story and now reading the Game Warden stories. And I said to somebody that, you know, those Joe Pickett stories, they're, they're not real Game Warden stories. You know, not, that doesn't happen to all of us. I said, you know, think about it collectively. All the game wardens across this country, you put our experiences together, murders, investigations, thefts, all this stuff that goes on, guess what? Collectively, we are Joe Pickett. So welcome, CJ Box. I am so excited. This is a a great 100th series. John and I are wicked excited. So thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. I, 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 I like the way you put that, that, you know, obviously... When you write a long series of books, it's now approaching 23. Wow. Um, you know, readers have to really suspend their disbelief to think that a single game warden could have gone through all these things. Yes. So uh, I know that going in. So what I try to do, um, knowing that, is make be as authentic as I can in regard to, the, to Joe Pickett and his duties and his family and make that the realistic part knowing that each book it's going to go off in a different direction um, that may or may not be a typical game warden kind of interaction or plot line. Um, some are, definitely. Some are not. Yeah, CJ, it's it's just, uh, like Wayne said, it's great to have you on the show. And nobody has really brought what game wardens do, either fictionalized or nonfiction or the combination of all the experiences we share, you know, to the forefront of awareness than you being a New York times bestselling author with the Joe Pickett series and so many books. Um, and now the television series that fortunately very excited to hear that it is going into a second season. And mm-hmm. uh, Michael Dorman is absolutely crushing it as Joe Pickett. I kind of really fell in love with his work, watching him on Apple TVs for all mankind space race work he did. And I, I just think he brings the emotionality and the uniqueness of Game Wardens. But when your series started, when you were trying to get your book started, doing some research and following you for all these years, you weren't, your protagonist was not a Game Warden. You were doing like a detective, uh, a police officer, a rural deputy. But fortunately for us, you turned it to be a Game Warden that all these things happened to and blew it up. How did that happen and why the change? Um, well, primarily because, you know, I wasn't ever planning a series. 
I wasn't ever thinking, you know, the world's just waiting for a game warden series and I'm the guy who can bring, deliver that. Um, for me, it was more about to start out. This is 23 years ago, 25 years ago. Um, more about the issue of the of Endangered Species Act, um, how well-meaning legislation can sometimes go awry on the ground and how to deal with that. And it all came from a true life story when I was a journalist in Wyoming about the discovery of black-footed ferrets by my wing. <laughs> because I had grown up seeing all these little posters all around saying, if you see this little creature, call this number. You know, they thought at that time that those uh, that ferret, the black-footed ferrets might be extinct. And um, when the, a colony was discovered, what was so fascinating to me was that just about everybody in that community knew they were there and no one had ever made the call because they knew what kind of impact that would be. And I thought, what an interesting kind of new West outdoor story that I wanted to tell in fiction form. And um, like you said, at first, the first few drafts were with a sheriff and then a journalist. But at the time I was going on ride alongs with a local game warden in Saratoga, Wyoming. And I realized the game warden would be the perfect protagonist for this particular story because a game warden would be in the field, dealing with landowners, dealing with feds, um, especially in Wyoming. And um, and I, I was also really struck by, uh, you know, the family life and the structure of game wardens in Wyoming where there there's only 50 of them still. Um, they a lot of them live in state owned homes mm -hmm. and their wives and kids <clears throat> tend be unpaid assistants in the job. <laughs> and, and I wanted to, you know, introduce the family element to the first book too, which I'm glad I did now hmm. so many books later. Yeah, it's it's really shown too. And I, I know we're going to talk about the TV series in a minute, but that story of ferrets and, you know, an endangered species and being covered up or destroyed for development. I mean, that's that's the ultimate, you know, you know, wildlife crime we're seeing as we develop the rest of the US. And being a retired lieutenant from California, but now residing where my family's from in Montana, we've seen the diversity of commercial development in the Silicon Valley with like the K-Rat and different animals. And mm -hmm. ferret was always a hot button issue for us in California because they're a prohibited species. So I won't belabor that story, but you really, really nailed it um, to bring that out because people just don't realize that game wardens are under those massive cases that make or break an endangered species loss to development. It's not just hook and bullet stuff and the hunting and the fishing and checking fishing licenses. And uh, we just don't see that in mainstream until we start to see it on television where the average viewer goes, wow, I had no idea that that's what game wardens could even do. This doesn't even right. seem like fiction, but obviously it's, it's not in many cases. So that's really come across uh, in the series from that very first start of your story. That's incredible. Good. Good. Mm. Thank you. Um, and that's one thing, I mean, this is not news to either of you or probably the people who are listening or watching, especially in the rural, you know, in the Mountain West, game wardens get involved in things way beyond, you know, handing out uh, recitations for, you know, um, not having a fishing license. Right. Um, they, in small towns, they're called on in hostage situations, um, you know, missing persons, all sorts of things. And so that once I found that out, it broadened, you know what Joe Pickett could be involved in. And that made it much, much easier going forward to be able to incorporate other issues. Yeah. yeah it brings a little realism too. Um, even though it's a fictionalized story, because like you said, we as game wardens live in our homes, have our offices, our trucks, we're committed to our district and we know everybody, especially in these small towns. So if somebody does go missing, 
or in the case of what you're doing in the book and with the scripted series, there's some realism to that connection to that person and going a little bit further because you know, and you've bonded and you've been at town functions, you've gone to cattle brandings and all these other things. And that's just the uniqueness of that game warden relationship. Like you riding along with your game warden in Wyoming. That's super neat that you're getting that side of it out. And people are seeing that because that's certainly been underrepresented for the 30 years I was operational in Wayne as well. So um, that's really coming to limelight, especially in the TV series to, to good effect and kudos. Good. I'm, I'm glad you say so. Yeah. And that's, you know, I live in a very small community in, in South. We live on our little ranch in, uh, in Wyoming. We lived here 40 years ago and then uh, were able to buy the place and move back. And when I first started writing the books, I was, I was struck by how important the local game warden was to the mm-hmm. local community that everybody seemed to know where he was, um, where he might be patrolling. Um, you know, they, there's a real relationship that builds with the game warden in a hunting community that I think is unlike anything else in law enforcement. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I mean, I don't know any of the local cops, but I know the game warden really well, and everybody does. And I just think that's a very special kind of relationship. Yeah. And, I- and one that you, you, know, you end up at people's houses looking for information, or you have that special tip with someone that was a poacher. I call it the, the poacher to preacher. And Wayne and I talk about this a lot with our other guests because we end up having to make a bust on somebody, but we end up developing this bond and there's a kind of a respect after they've, you know, paid their penance, if you will. And they become our best informants for those real sinister crimes to make the real good cases. Right. Using resource. And again, you know, you're hitting all that in your stories. We're seeing that in the TV series and, you know, we're, I'm being a kind of a critic, right? Going, okay, how, how false is this? How far from the truth is it? How, you know, relatable is this? And it's just checking all those boxes because we've had something like that. So yeah, good stuff. I do got to ask you because you're an executive producer on the show yeah, and that's, that's a good thing to see when the author is an, an EP and hopefully they're, you know, having input that we're not getting too far away from your vision with the books, from the realism of what you, you know, kind of an empowered Joe Pickett to be. Tell us about that experience. How much involvement do you have? How has the process of doing the show been for you? How laborious has it been? Because it's a massive undertaking with all the coordinated effort. That's super interesting. And obviously to the level of what you've had to, had to be involved in it. You're- I found it fascinating. And it's not my first rodeo. There's also another TV show on called Big Sky on ABC mm-hmm. on my other books. And the two experiences of dealing with the two different series are completely different. <laughs> The Joe Pickett series, I I love it. 
um, and primarily because the people involved, the executive producers and the showrunners, were big fans of the series before it ever started. Nice. And they wanted to bring the books to life as opposed to putting those characters on the screen and doing their own thing, which is something every author deals with. Everybody who agrees to do a series or a movie knows that that's a possibility that it will, the end product will not resemble anything that was in the book in the first place. Um, I've been very happy how they have, I mean, when I went to the set the very first time it was in Canada and it was hard because of all the COVID restrictions. One of the things that I really noticed that was in every actor's trailers on the set, on the little cotton chairs you sit on, were really well-thumbed copies of the first book, Open Season. Nice. So everybody was into it. And the producers, the showrunners even made the point that whenever they kind of hit a dilemma on how to advance the story, they go back to the book as opposed right. to making up their own way of doing it. And that's every writer's dream is that they'll do that. They're Yeah, they shot the second uh, season now. It, it's going to incorporate parts of three books. Um, they're not necessarily going to be in order, but um, parts of three books, how they fit together. And But they're they're really into it. I, I, you know, I find that really rewarding. So, yeah, that, that's huge. I have a, we have some follow-up on that, but doing some research, it sounded like three or four years ago when this thing had been optioned and it was in, in development or pre-production that you weren't happy with it perhaps, or uh, things weren't going the right direction with the current production team. And you, you had, at least you had the, the, the final say to say, this is going the wrong direction. Tell us a little bit about that because that's, that's near and dear to any author and especially game wardens having the integrity of the story. The, the produce. Yeah. At one time, and there's still some confusion because the, the the post that we wrote saying we we quit the game when we quit the Joe Pickett series right still <laughs> keeps recirculating all the time even though it's eight nine years old and so people get confused but um, yeah what we saw was that um, at that time the team that was going to do to produce a TV show um, took it at a just a totally different standpoint um, their their philosophy was completely different it was going to be in effect Joe Pickett eco warrior. There, you know, as you know, there is some of that involved in, in game warden duties, absolutely. But that's not the primary job. It's just to go after developers and companies and so on. And we saw that was the direction it was going. And we thought, geez, we'd rather not have something on the air than something that was bad. Yes. And we were able to get out of that. And then about a year later, I was approached by the new people. And they had read the books and they were into them. And uh, it just it was the right way to go. I'm not, I mean, I'm not involved on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm not on the set. I'm not overlooking scripts. Um, where I'm involved, the way I look at it is I provide the source material and I do talk to the writers and producers before the season, talking about the overall narrative arc. Mm -hmm. And then um, hopefully they'll get it right. You know, I, I, I can't afford to be writing books and sitting on the set of a series because sets are incredibly boring. Right. And every time I go there, I can't wait. I start to start thinking how many more hours before I can leave. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the one thing is you landed with Paramount, which Paramount plus right now with all our military and LEO friends and different guys I'm working with in production through Paramount, it's becoming kind of the servicemen or the Patriots network. Mm -hmm. and when I saw when it went from Spectrum or wherever it was going to go, the series beginning and all of a sudden it's on Paramount, you know, to follow up with Taylor Sheridan and the Yellowstone franchise 
and and for our like-mindedness living in the states that we do and that message it just landed a, a perfect place for game warden story and i was kind of like whoo okay it's already looking better i haven't seen the first episode yet and then of course my whole family got hooked in and we were just going crazy with it so it seems like you've, you've landed in a really good place and obviously joe pickett's um that character arc like crazy through the first season. So I can only imagine where season two is going to go. And, and Wayne and I and our colleagues have been discussing this, but any, any surprises or anything you can kind of hint at that uh, viewers can maybe not expect or be surprised by. Sure. I can tell you, um, the, and, and I have not seen it yet, so I don't know how it's all well, but when I talk to the producers, they plan to use several of the books in, in, in an arc, starting with the third book, Winter Kill, where Joe Pickett is handcuffed to his steering wheel by a, uh, an official that he arrests for poaching. And then um, Nowhere to Run, where uh, he encounters two brothers in the mountains living alone that are scary. And then um, some, of, some of Nowhere to Run, excuse me, Force of Nature, which is the primarily the, the Nate Romanowski book. Yeah, very intense. I mean, those are three of the most intense books and the book Blood Trail. A little of that in there, too. Yeah, they're they're hitting on the the intense stuff and they've got a lot of good stuff to choose from. So you're probably pretty happy that they're picking those particular stories and dissecting all your books very carefully. So that's exciting. We're looking forward to seeing it. Yeah, I am, too. (laughs) (laughs) And and the cool thing is, I don't know if you know this, I mean, because. It it gets it, uh, it was originally on Spectrum when it went, when it went to Paramount Plus, it quickly became the number thir- three drama on Paramount Plus, mm. even with all those big heavyweight shows on that network. So Paramount Plus is now doing it exclusively because it did so well. So there's a lot of viewers for it. Yeah, nice. that, that's that's incredible. And um, you're filming everything in Canada, right? Right, right. It's filmed that um, in and around Calgary. How has that been in relation to Wyoming's real landscape? What I've seen of all the stuff, and we're even looking at productions that I'm involved in of looking at Canada. And it's amazing how similar to the mountains of California, to you know Montana, where I live up in the wilderness now. How has it been translated to, um, to the Wyoming settings? Because I've spent a lot of time hunting in the great state of Wyoming and working with those game wardens as well. And man, it's, it's a mirror image of some of the Bridger Tetons where I've mule deer hunted. I had no idea that the credits were in Canada. I thought you guys were filming in Wyoming. So how's that been overall? Well, you know, honestly, I wanted them to film in Wyoming. Yeah. But the, uh, the film incentive program that the state offered was horrible. Yeah. And they could do it so much cheaper and easier in Canada because yeah. they had a built-in infrastructure. They have huge studios up there in Calgary. Um, they found a community that um, is outside of Calgary that could replicate Saddle String, I thought, very well. Yeah. And like you say, the landscape, it's all Rocky Mountains. So, yeah. um, you know, it just goes north. And I, I was very impressed by the locations as well, even though they weren't in Wyoming. Yeah, they, they, they look really, really cool. Yeah. CJ, I'd like to go back to open season and all the research you did before then and the intercation of the, you know, involvement of the family, because that's something each and every game warden experiences um, from the wife right down. And, you know, my wife uh, encouraged me to retire. She's like, uh, when the phone rings all night long, it wakes up everybody in the house. So 
she'd be dealing with that for 23 years. And I think as you go up the chain, it just gets worse and worse. So, but you started that dynamic. You just didn't figure that out. You, you figured that out, but you know, can you talk about that whole prep? Because let's face it, open season was the kickoff to grab everybody. And even my wife, when I talk to her about the books that I've been listening to for you, she's like, yeah, I'm going to listen to that after because now I'm interested to see the wife dynamic, to see the family dynamic. So I think that's a really cool thing you've captured. Well, thank you. Interestingly enough, I was telling my publishers over the years that at the book signing events I would do, the audiences would be 50-50 men and women, mm. which is very unusual for a mystery, thriller, outdoor kind of series. And they did. I think they didn't believe me. <laughs> until they did some focus groups and they found out that my readership is 51% women. And um, a lot of the women, you know, are a little more interested maybe in the family dynamics in the books than the adventure, which is fine. But that was one thing that struck me early on doing the ride-alongs was I don't think there's any other member of law enforcement um, whose family is involved in everyday cases and calls and visits and, um, the family, you know, in a small town, the, the, the kids of the game warden are all kind of approached differently from other kids who might be hunters or their parents might be poachers. And um, I thought that as a dynamic, I thought that was very fascinating and unlike anything else in law enforcement. Just like I read a, uh, a stat a long time ago that, you know, game wardens encounter more armed people than any other person in law enforcement because they're in the field, you know, they're Mm -hmm. dealing with hunters, even in inner cities, there's not everybody is armed, but in the field they are. And um, game wardens have to deal with those things in a different way. Yeah. And the other thing you approached and I'll tell you, it was unnerving for me is Joe Pickett lost his gun in open season. And that is probably the worst nightmare of any law enforcement officer ever. Never mind any game warden that so works so remotely. But that right. was that was a subject you took on early. And I'll tell you, uh, the hair on the back of my neck stood up and I'm like, boy, that was brave to go there because that's our worst fear. I, and I understand that. And, um, but I wanted to make, I wanted to make sure that the Joe Pickett character was flawed and not perfect. Yeah. And things, you know, I think it, it, in retrospect, I think what it does is increase, it increases the tension and suspense in the book to know that Joe Pickett is not a Superman, that he screws up. Um, <laughs> he makes decisions like all people do. And sometimes they're the wrong ones. Mm-hmm. And in that particular instance, yes, I wanted that shadow kind of hanging over him as he proceeded. Cause I thought then the, you know, the redemption part of that, would 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 land harder yeah for sure and the and, and then the pa- also a lousy shot which <laughs> drives some some law enforcement people out of their minds when i meet when i meet them they're going ah why didn't he learn to shoot <laughs> no that that that's great i mean learning to shoot and being a great shot is, is two things i've i think i've been a good shot when i needed to be but the other times that uh, you know there's still deer running around that are laughing at me so yes yeah, exactly right <laughs> And you know, that, was, pick, that was definitely one of really improved over the years that much. Oh. Um, he relies on his shotgun if he gets into a good jam. Smart. Yeah, I, I think it's hard for guys in our line of work, whether it's military LEOs and tactical training officers, safety and all that, CJ, 
to really under it takes a while to understand that you have to have an arc you have to have fallibility with these characters or it's just like watching a mechanical terminator special operations guy out there and it's a documentary right it's it's not an exciting scripted series and the opening scenes of the first episode of this and he loses his gun to you know our our antagonist for that whole first season i went oh no this is going to make yeah. game look so bad i've spent my whole career training game wardens to survive as a firearms instructor and then i got more and more into the series and went, Oh, this is great. You know, it's showing him evolve. It's showing him get a little more deliberate, learn from his mistakes and take two steps back, five steps forward type deal. And it's just important for the audience to understand that, or it's just not going to continue. Um, if it's that, you know, just vanilla and predictable. Um, but it is, it is hard to see that coming from our line of work. And we got to get out of that mindset to understand the, 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 the real comprehensiveness of the story. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. You know, one time I, I went to do some research in, a, in Montana and um, it was in Helena, Montana, with, going out with deputy sheriffs. And the first thing they did after I landed was take me out on the range to show me how to shoot. And I, you know, guys, I can't shoot. It's Joe Pickett you need to train, you know, uh, it, but that was very important to them. Yeah. And you've done a lot of that research, you know, and continually do it, or you got a good handle on it now, or? I always try to um, find experts in whatever topic I'm covering on both sides of the controversial issue mm. and either interview them or visit them and try to understand the other point of view mm-hmm. and um, then put, put those into the books and let the reader decide how they want to come down on it. I don't try to write agenda books at all. But I love the research part of it. Um, mm. You know, recently we have a new game warden here in my little town, and he's nice. a young guy. And I went on a ride along with him, and I learned some new things about shed hunting that I did not know and would never have known that I then incorporated in the book that's coming out in February. Awesome. Very cool. And the other thing you tackle is to the politics. And game wardens, by choice, are in the politics, whether new rules come out on the fundamentals or new things come out nationally. Uh, we are definitely politicians for conservation, whether it doesn't matter which side you're on, but conservation, you know, has politics. Preservation is doesn't have politics because you're always on one side, but conservation always has points of view, which I thought it really cool that you... You know, a, a Joe writes the, you know, arrests the governor. I mean, that's that's pretty bold, too. But to be honest with you, we've, we've had pretty damn close to the governor in several cases. <laughs> can, I, can I tell you a quick story about that? Absolutely. Please. Yeah. Happened in the very first book where Joe Pickett kind of has his sort of known for arresting the governor because he didn't recognize him. Um, <laughs> right. I, I got that from a true story of a game warden outside of Cheyenne, Wyoming who actually had arrested the head of the game and fish department for fishing without a license. And the head, the director tried to um, send him a license that was false to make him get him off the hook. And I thought that what a gutsy thing to do. And the game warden I was going on right alongs with, I told him, I said, I've got this story in here. I put, I made it to governor. And it was yeah. years later before I realized the game warden I was going out with was the one who arrested his boss. But he didn't tell me time. <laughs> He's filling you out a little longer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe that's a story he didn't want to repeat. <laughs> yeah. 
there's so many intricacies like that. And like I said, collectively, I think we are Joe Pickett because I can tell you other game warden stories that they probably don't want to hear. Uh, but certainly, we, you know, when I first came on as a young game warden, we, we arrested a representative that was uh, pretty powerful. And that takes on a whole different light in an investigation mm-hmm. Um, and, and the head of a very, you know, nonprofit wildlife agencies too, that was, uh, involved in too. And it, it was amazing to, to watch the, the whole case evolve and how you had to dot every I and cross every T and you didn't want to make a misstep when you handle people like that. Um, and eventually we won, um, and, and things went our way, but it was, uh, yeah. And, and to, and to, address that it was like i'm like man this guy uh <laughs> he, he's been riding with game wardens he just didn't pick this up and, and start writing from his experience uh some of the things in the cruiser that you mentioned always uh, sparked my interest you know i think there was one covering up the lights so there's no glow and th- little things mm-hmm. that we d- work, yeah. th- that, that only black. we do john only we do and i'm like he's got some yeah. serious good connections and, and attention to detail as well so it held my interest, which, you know, I, I don't watch Northwood's Law because it's like watching work. So, <laughs> yeah, this, this is this is refreshing in the television venue of just the whole medium of seeing something scripted and seeing, you know, it through the eyes of you and the other producers and the writers. And I like that you're tackling in season one of the television series, the politics, the massive money, the selfishness, the greed. Because as a Silicon Valley lieutenant, I can't tell you how many billion-dollar tech companies we up up against for endangered species threats. And you can imagine, CJ, the heat, like Wayne just said, that we take for that. And, I mean, when you put a game warden in that realm that's so connected to the community in the woods one minute, and now they're in a massive political multi-billion-dollar fight, that's heavy stuff. And and you're hitting that right in, right in your books, of course, but seeing it on the TV series immediately just legitimizes how important game wardens are how few we are, how thin the thin green line really is. And just thank you for representing the thin green line and, mm. and being the, a massive outreach component. Wayne and I do this out. We do this podcast and the films and the other things I do. And, and with my outreach brand and books like you simply to get that message of a very underrepresented group of LEOs that are passionate about conservation. And we're losing ground every day with everything that's going on since COVID and the pandemic and forest being just, just riddled, as you know, I'm preaching to the mm-hmm. choir, but you're, uh, you're countering that in your work a lot, man. And it's super cool. And, uh, we're excited for season two and, and this next book coming out. I can't wait to dive in and really happy to have you on today. Well, I'm very, this is, this is fun. We should do this again. Cause this is We'd love to. Yeah, it, absolutely. Um, I mean, I get, you know, I am not a game warden, have never been a game warden. I was a state employee once, so I know that stuff. But um, uh, when I go out and travel the country and do events, I get as many game warden questions as I do about the books. So I feel like a representative. Yes. And um, So I try to get it right. And I do have three game wardens, one retired, who every time I write a section in a book that goes to do with bureaucracy or policy or um, other game wardens, I always send them those passages to say, did I get that right? Or you said, I think that a little bit. Because I would hate it if I had game wardens say, man, that guy, he didn't know what he's talking about. You know, I, I'd hate that, even if their books were extremely popular. Yeah. No, you, you are yeah. getting it right, CJ, and we are very happy. Thank you for doing that because those attentions to detail is what, you know, totally turned me on after a few chapters that I'm like, you know, this, this guy's putting his time in 
and he's doing what I, I think, you know, our game wardens deserve. And I, I really appreciate it. it. It takes courage to to put that stuff out, to be honest, because uh, we're critics. We're, we're probably the worst critics in the world, game wardens. And oh, uh, <laughs> I appreciate the courage on every front, from the politics to the, the little things. Um, yeah, no, I, I appreciate it. And I appreciate that. And CJ, we definitely love to have you back on and maybe get through a little bit of season two in your next book. And we can dive, go down the rabbit hole a little deeper when you've got time and we'll, uh, we'll keep it going. Cause we certainly just scratched the surface today and be an honor to have you back. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been fun. Episode 100. And, and I will tell you, CJ, when I started uh, warden's watch, I had a, a kid that was working for Waypoint TV that was uh, doing podcasting stuff. And he said, Wayne, you know, I, I'd be interested if you got CJ Box. I read all his books and everything. So, <laughs> Hunter, I was thinking you the whole time that try, trying to line up this podcast and certainly appreciate, uh, you know, what he, he did initially for me too. And uh, this is a special thing for number 100. Number 100 special and having a, a, somebody that writes about game wardens and gets it right. And you've been doing it a while now. That's, that's, that's impressive. So, Thank you so much for being the 100th guest on the Warden's Watch podcast. It's been epic. Well, it's my pleasure and my honor. Thank you very much. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves Game Wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch.